Thank you. Thank you for that team. And I love Lectio 365. That prayer of confession was marvelous. Good morning and happy new year. My name is Alex and I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright. I want to start off this morning with a simple question. What would you say is your calling? How would you answer that question? What's your calling? It's not something people may ask you every day. But this morning, we are beginning a six-week adventure and exploration of this idea of vocation, of calling. And this is a series that flows right out of the last two Sundays, if you've been with us for those. We heard testimonies from some of our young people who are recent graduates of high school and the ways that they are feeling called by God to to him, first of all, but also to, to different ways of serving him in the world in different places. And we're going to hear some further testimonies from who are new to our congregation starting next week as well. So we get our English word vocation from the Latin verb vocare, which means to call or to name. As Christians, we believe that God calls us, that that is where the spiritual life begins, and all of life begins, really. But we also call to each other. Calling is always relational. Even being here this morning with only 10 of us in the room, uh, we miss that. We miss singing together and the way that we call and encourage each other in that way. The word vocation is often also associated with a job or a career. Uh, You may have heard vocation used to refer to a call to a religious life, the call a priest might receive. That would be more often used in the Catholic Church in that way. I love the way that Frederick Buechner defines vocation. He says that it's the place where our deep gladness meets the world's deep need. In other words, he's saying that your vocation combines something you love and something you're good at with helping other people. So I'm excited that we're going to spend these six Sundays pondering this question, what's your calling? And I'm excited about that because I've seen what happens when people wake up to God's presence and power in every corner of their life and and start to get excited about what that means for us together as God's church. Not just about God with us on Christmas or God with us on Sunday mornings, but God with us always in every pursuit, lighting up the terrain. It's exciting to live a life with God. So today we start with Moses and what I would say is the most famous story of calling in the whole Bible. There may be some other candidates and you can duke that out in the chat section perhaps. We're going to pick Moses' story up in Exodus 3 where we find him tending sheep in the desert. Moses was born in Egypt. He was born to a Hebrew mother and father, but at the time, Pharaoh was killing the baby boys of the Israelite people, and so he was hidden by his mother, and he was claimed by an Egyptian princess, the daughter of Pharaoh, and raised in the palace. Eventually, he committed a crime. He killed a man, and he had to flee from Egypt to escape Pharaoh's judgment. And then many years passed. He made a home for himself in Midian, And he got married, he had children, and he went into business with his father-in-law as a shepherd. But God had 
further plans for Moses. And at the end of chapter 2 of Exodus, it says, The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help went up to God. God heard them, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Which doesn't mean he'd forgotten his covenant, but it means that he moved to fulfill his covenant. On the basis of his previous covenant, he was now going to take the initiative. God looked down on the Israelites and was concerned about them, we read. Let's see what happens next. Before we open our Bibles, let's pray and ask God for his blessing on the ministry of his word. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come among us. And as Brian said at the beginning of the service, even though we are few in number in this room, we know that, that you unite us uh, in a way that is not natural, that is beyond our understanding. The mystic, sweet communion of your church. Uh, no matter the distance that separates us, no matter the barriers of all kinds, you bring us together on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. So would you feed us as your church today through your word? Give us words of eternal life, we ask in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So we're going to read Exodus chapter 3, starting at verse 1 and ending six words into, into verse 16. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, What's his name? Then, what should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me, from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. So a few days ago, my son Callum asked me how I became a Christian. He knows that when I was his age, I had given up my faith, but he didn't know what had happened to change that. It's funny because I just assumed that he did know. I've told the story many times over the years, but maybe I had never told it to him before, and maybe it's been a while since I told it at all. So I did. I told him the story of my conversion, how God showed up in my life in a once and for all life-changing way and set me on a path that's led to today, a path I've traveled with him. The first vocation of every Christian is to be called into a real personal encounter with God, the God of the universe, who we encounter through Jesus Christ and who changes us as we are filled with the Holy Spirit. So how does that happen? Well, it's going to look different for every one of us. But there are also some aspects of our Christian calling that we all share. And we can see that here in the story of the calling of Moses. So this morning we're going to reflect on three aspects of this text. We're going to ponder God's provocation, his paradox, and his promise to Moses here. God reaches out to us in the same way. He provokes us, he offers us a paradox, and he gives us his promise. So Moses is walking along, minding his own business, when he sees a bush on fire that was burning but did not burn up. At first, he wasn't aware that the angel of the Lord was right there. He simply saw something on fire. He could easily have walked on by you can imagine him thinking, hey, there's a bush on fire. You don't see that every day, but I have to get these sheep home by 6 p.m., and I don't really have time to stop and take a closer look. Moses had a choice to make in that moment, but he was only faced with that decision because he had been provoked. God had taken the initiative. When you provoke someone, you stir them to action or feeling. I could do that to some of you online by pretty much guaranteeing that the Leafs are going to demolish the Habs this coming Wednesday night. In the first hockey game, it feels like we've had in a very, very long time. And some of you might push back. Those of you who, muddle-headed as you are, follow the Montreal Canadiens. If you were here in the room right now, did I hear someone make a noise? There are only 10 of us, and yet a Habs fan has somehow infiltrated... <laughs> If you were here in the room right now, you'd be heckling me. So that's one good thing about the lockdown, that you're not here, but one of you somehow got in. So a provocation elicits a response. When God provokes us, he wants to wake us up. He wants to get our attention, and he wants for us to respond to him. He knows that we lead pretty ordinary lives, 
most of the time, we're in autopilot, going about our business. We have our routines, we have jobs, meetings, classes, things we have to get done. And then we find ways to amuse and entertain ourselves. And the months pass, the years pass. Blaise Pascal calls this the principle of diversion. He says, being unable to cure death, wretchedness, and ignorance, men have decided in order to be happy not to think about such things. I can see that it makes a man happy to be diverted from contemplating his private miseries by making him care about nothing more than how to dance well. So in the 17th century, dancing may have been the diversion of choice for those who could afford it, but 400 years later, we still dance, and yet we have other diversions and self-deceptions of our own, like sports, video games, Netflix, shopping, fashion, and you name it, whatever it is that you love to engage in. And there's nothing wrong with things, but they don't satisfy us at a deeper level. They don't fill our souls. And when we try to fill our souls with them, we run into trouble. Most of the time, our lives are pretty ordinary, pretty gray. But God wants to break through those overcast skies with the brilliance of the midday sun. He wants to set the ordinary of our lives on fire. He wants to tell us the truth about ourselves and the world we live in. And so he provokes us with burning bushes. He stirs us to feeling and to action. He invites us, first of all, to stop and to pay attention to him and then to respond. He interrupts our plans and he calls us to a whole new life. So where do we see these burning bushes in our lives? Moses could not explain a bush that burned and was not consumed. And we, for our part, can't explain certain things that make us stop and wonder. They're inexplicable. God provokes us when we're willing to stop and consider it in all kinds of perplexing ways. But I think the biggest three are inexplicable people, inexplicable trouble, and inexplicable emptiness. First of all, God uses the people around us to provoke us. A guy by the name of Mike Hare was a big part of my conversion story. Mike was my counselor when I did the LIT program at Pioneer Camp as a 16-year-old, and he would drive to Toronto from Hamilton, where he lived with his wife and child, and where he worked as a staff worker with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at McMaster, and he would take me out to dinner. I was this obnoxious, pimply 16-year-old, and he would buy me steak. Literally, I had my first steak with Mike Hare. It was inexplicable that he would do that for me. Then eight years later, the two Bible verses that he had given me at the end of camp that summer showed up in the most unlikely moment, in the most miraculous way. And part of the story is that Mike died in a car accident, and he was, he was driving a group of students from Mac to a winter retreat, and they were in a van, and they hit a, a tractor trailer head-on in a whiteout, and... Um, and his death impacted me enormously, and, and it, it wouldn't have had the effect later, eight years later, 
uh, those verses that he gave me wouldn't have had that effect if not for his death, which is hard to wrap your head around. It's been hard for me. Let me give you another more recent example. Five years ago, a guy by the name of Bruce Duville, a busy university instructor who I had met one time at a conference and had exchanged a few messages with on social media, showed me inexplicable kindness as I was preparing for the comprehensive exams that were part of my doctoral program at U of T by spending hours and hours literally helping me as I was completely freaking out, having to read and somehow digest a hundred books and prepare for an oral and written exam. If you're here today, I am willing to bet that it's because of the witness of inexplicable people in your life whose kindness has led you to Christ. God also uses inexplicable trouble in our lives to teach us to depend on him. As long as things are going well, we find it pretty easy to ignore God. But suffering can move us to stop and pay attention. God does not want us to suffer. Our suffering does not come from God, but he knows that we don't grow without suffering. If you had no pain in your life ever, you would not become the person God wants you to be. C.S. Lewis wrote that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us through our consciences, but shouts to us in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So suffering jolts us back into the reality of our needs and our limitations. Have you had your heart broken? I pray that you will find healing and restoration from God and that he will call you to care for others who are going through heartbreak because that is what he does. He always calls us to himself, gives us what we need, and then sends us out. Or maybe you're grieving the loss of a loved one or you have someone who's close to you who's sick or who's living with the challenge of a disability or mental illness. God gives us hope when we are in the darkest valleys. And as he does that, he is preparing to lift us out of those places and to use us as a light in the darkness for others. This pandemic is perhaps the greatest example of inexplicable suffering many of us have ever experienced. And I believe that through it, God is inviting us as his church to sow seeds of his gospel good news among our neighbors and our friends. Suffering always leads us back to God if we're willing to stop and listen. And it leads us into the company of those who depend on him. And then there's inexplicable emptiness. Even in those moments when we're on top of the world, when everything is going right, when we've gotten what we wanted, we still feel it. We still have an emptiness beneath the surface. We may be wealthy and healthy and blessed in many ways, and yet it is not enough. The material world, the promise of the secular life will never satisfy us. And that empty feeling is God's provocation to us as we're prepared to listen to it. And so when burning bushes appear in our lives, we can't afford to ignore them. God is always calling us through those experiences. And so we see Mer Moses turn aside from his path, and he approaches the light. And that's when things get really interesting. 
God calls to Moses from within the bush, and Moses responds saying, here I am. And then God says, don't come any closer. So this is the paradox. We already have the contradiction of a, bu of a bush that burns and yet is not consumed, but it turns out that God's very nature is a paradox. God tells Moses to come here, and then he tells him to go away. When God calls Moses by name, when he says, Moses, Moses, he's doing something in Hebrew that makes it really clear he wants Moses to get close to him. That double name, Moses, Moses, the repetition there, signifies love and emotional intensity. And then the very next thing he says is stop. Stop right there. And that doesn't make any sense until you start to grasp the paradox. You see, God is both perfect love and perfect holiness. Moses cannot come any closer to God's holiness or he will be consumed. As a symbol of this, he has to take off his sandals. In verse 14, when God gives his name, he says, I am who I am. He does not say, I am whoever you want me to be. God is fire. He is not clay. Clay can be shaped, it melts in the hands of the one who crafts it, but fire, fire melts the person who touches it. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a God of fire. When we picture this burning bush, at least when I do, I think we may have something pretty tame in mind, like something from the garden center with a few red flourishes. Do you know that the burning bush is actually one of the historic symbols of Presbyterian churches around the world? This slide shows some uh, logos, I guess you'd call them, from churches, a Presbyterian church in Brazil, in Canada, in Trinidad and Tobago, and in Singapore, all of them featuring a burning bush. More often than not, the burning bush is a neat image contained on something like this stained glass window. This next slide shows us a window from the Church of Scotland. But next image, this painting by Mark Wigan, an artist in the UK, is probably much closer to the reality of what Moses experienced. We heard it in Psalm 46, didn't we? He lifts his voice and the earth melts. God melts us. His holiness is a fire. And yet, in Psalm 46, we're also drawn to his voice. He says, be still and know that I am God. He wants to be in a relationship with us. He wants us to know he loves us, that he is with us. If you want the real God, you have to look for a God who isn't malleable, who won't simply agree with your plans and fit into the culture around you. You need a God who challenges you and tells you things you don't want to hear. You need a holy God who is distinct and true and also who loves you and wants the best for you. We usually just get one side of this. Traditionally, religious people tend to focus on God's holiness more than his love. Whereas in our society today, people want the love, but not the holiness so much. But God is both. He burns with the fire of holiness, 
and he burns with love for each and every one of us. The vocation that will fulfill you only comes as you respond to the call of the God of the Bible who is both holy and loving. And the only true resolution for this divine paradox comes in a promise, a promise which leads to Jesus. Here in Exodus 3, we have the promise of freedom, freedom from slavery in Egypt, and the promise of a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses will lead the exodus of God's people from Egypt. He's reluctant, but God will help him. God promises, I will be with you. But the ultimate promise of redemption for all people everywhere only comes in Christ. Who is the angel we read about in verse 2? The messenger of God who appears in the flames. It's a mystery. The text does not tell us, but we can be confident that the Lord, the angel of the Lord, points to the appearance of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is the only one who can bridge the gap between us and God. Jesus, who is the new and living way through the paradox that once separated us and into the presence of God the Father, into the Holy of Holies. In the Gospel of John, Jesus often describes himself saying, I am. When he does that, when Jesus says, I am, he's echoing God here in Exodus 3, whose name is I am who I am. When Jesus says, I am, he's telling us that he's come to be the face of God that we can see, to show us God's love, come close. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And so he went to the cross to be the final sacrifice in the fire of God's holiness. He died so that our sins can be forgiven, so that we can come close to God. Jesus also says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus, the I am of the new covenant, is the promise of eternal life with God. And Jesus is the promise that has sustained our friend, known to many of us, Linda Campbell, through so many challenges, including cancer. I don't know if you've, most of us, most of you will not have had the chance to, to talk to Linda uh, over the last few months, but the hope that burns within her, the witness, the witness that she has been to God's eternal promise of new life, to victory over the grave, to hope that overcomes every despair would be inexplicable without the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. But even the promise of God is not enough for Moses. And for us as Christians, we have all the promises of Jesus and still we falter, we struggle. Like Moses, we ask the question, who am I? We risk getting the wrong idea. We sometimes think that God needs successful people and experts to do his will. That only priests and pastors or church leaders, elders maybe, have this vocation. But Moses was the definition of failure. He had every opportunity growing up in Pharaoh's household. But he became a murderer, the biggest screw-up ever. 
And yet God used him like almost no one else in history. All those years as a humble shepherd in the desert, all that time in exile, in solitude, had prepared him to stop and to listen. When Moses asks, who am I? It's not just an excuse. Throughout his life, he had wondered who he was. Raised Egyptian, but Hebrew by birth, he never fit in anywhere. It must have felt like a curse to him. But being part Egyptian and part Hebrew enabled him to bridge those two cultures and to play a role that others could not have played. That's how vocation works. God takes all of us, your personality, your experiences, your upbringing, your failures, your gifts, and he calls you to serve him in a particular way at a particular time. And he calls you into community too as a key part of that. Did you notice the start of verse 16? We just included a part of it where God says, go, assemble the elders of Israel. That is always the next step after God calls you. It's not Moses on his own trying to figure this out, but it's the support and challenge from the community of faith, from other leaders, other brothers and sisters in Christ. We need each other to find our true vocation. And that's partly what the church is for. So are you ready? Are you willing to stop and to take the time to listen for God's call in this new year? Don't pass on by the people, the experiences, the ways that God is reaching out to you. Because the call of Moses is foundational. Before we can go where we need to go or do what we need to do, first, we have to encounter the living God and have our hearts set on fire for him and by him. Oz Guinness puts this so well in his remarkable book, The Call. He says, Our primary calling as followers of Christ is by him, to him, and for him. First and foremost, we're called to someone, not to something like politics or teaching, or to somewhere like the inner city or outer Mongolia. We are called into relationship with God. That is what your soul needs. That is what the world needs. Now, next week, we'll talk a little more about the secondary calling of serving Christ in our jobs, in our retirement, in school, and in his church. But today, we've seen where it all starts. God provokes us with these burning bushes, and he invites us to stop and to pay attention to him. And then he shows us who he is, his character, and the paradox of his love for us along with his perfect holiness. And then he promises to free us from our sin and self-centeredness, to forgive us from our sins. He promises that through Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit, he will always be with us, that we will overcome all the adversity we're facing, and that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. It's good news, friends. I pray that you know it, that you can receive it today. And if you know, if, if this is something that's not personal for you, I want to invite you after our service ends to, to meet with one of the prayer ministers online or just in the quietness of your own home to take the time to pray and ask God to be more real to you this new year to ask God to 
light something on fire within you. Would you do that?